Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wealth Tech Show, CityWire's weekly podcast devoted to all things wealth technology. Today's episode is bound to be a good one. I'm joined by fintech mentor and angel investor Simone Ishikawa. Uh, Simone worked for the likes of Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, Oak North, and Morgan Stanley before diving headfirst into the world of tech startups. She's also a guest lecturer at Cambridge University's Judge Business School and a tutor for the Entrepreneurship Project at Oxford's Said Business School. So, Simone, we've known each other for a while now, um, so I should leave some space for you to describe who you are uh, and what you do in more detail. So, please, uh, tell us a little more about yourself, and also welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. Thanks, Ian. Um, thanks for having me. Actually, yeah, it's, it's interesting, because hearing all those names actually kind of sounds kind of things from the past in in many ways. Of course, you know, I've been part of those corporates at different pl- different times. Um, I think maybe when I was younger, it was kind of the brand value that, mm-hmm. that did it for me. But of course, you know, now I'm kind of independent doing uh, doing things, perhaps with some of that in the background um, yeah. of, you know, where I come from and where I've, what I've done. Um, I'm Korean by background. I uh, grew up in Korea. I left the country at the age of 14 to go to the U.S., um, I did a I did a school my formative years there so I spent my high school years and and um, went to university in the in the U.S. Uh, following that I got a corporate job at um, at, at Goldman's in New York uh, so and and you know moved here in 2006 so been here now coming up to 16 years yeah um, uh, of course you know in the fintech world fintech is an interesting term because we never really used to call it a fintech it's kind of a recent like you know marketing sugar-coated term uh you know it just sounds sexier and you know what, whatever, <laughs> yeah. what have you so it used to be just a tech solution tech vendor um so when i was at morgan stanley for example i i used to help out the coo um and the head of the department um at morgan stanley as equities division uh person and in there one of the big things that we, we did do was actually uh, scope out these com- scope yeah. out these companies that yeah. would be good vendor solutions for um for uh, all the things that we used to do whether it's you know um, kind of a new exchanges that were, you know, coming up against the, the uh, giant exchanges like the uh, NYSE or LSE or, or, or NASDAQ. Um, so you might remember there was a, um, MTF, so multilateral fl- uh, trading platforms like the BATS, for example, those that didn't want to get paid, they, that they wanted to give the money back to people who were giving them flows and things like that. So, of course, poor business models, but, you know, kind mm-hmm. of disruptive ideas. So we would um, work with them to form their, you know, pricing strategies, and work with, you know, work with them, um, and, and position someone from the organization to like put them onto their boards and, and things like that. So, strategic investments is what it used to be called. Uh, now it's called VC investments or equity financing, whatever have you. Um, so those things I used to do at Morgan Stanley, uh, I guess as a you know fintech area, and then I took a bit of time out of the industry uh, to do the stay on mom thing. Um, and and when I came back, actually, that's when a lot of the and, and this is at Credit Suisse and JP Morgan, there was a lot of confluence of like big data players and, and tech players that were kind of at the at, at their faces and, and you know, kind of wanting to be um, doing things with these institutions and institutions not being able to ignore them anymore. Because um, they weren't no longer, they weren't, um, you know, small players anymore. They were actually, you know, kind of getting all their market yeah. shares and they're actually really good tools. So they had to think about, are we going to um, work with them and take shares in them or are we going to work with them as a customer or are we going to buy them? So, you know, in, in, in different flavors of working with them in partnership, um, what do we do with them? So that's kind of where I cut my tooth into the fintech world. Um, since then, um, I joined a fintech company uh, itself um, since since leaving JP Morgan called Oak North. Um, they are a challenger lender in the UK and they were... Um, playing on the platform space, so plug and play platform um, as a as a pass and SaaS business into the uh, lenders outside the UK. 
Um, so I, I was there for almost a year, um, kind of driving a lot of the commercialization efforts. Had a great time, but also uh, super chaotic, obviously different, different types of institutions altogether. Um, had a great time. Um, and during the time, I actually started uh, angel investing into uh, some of the fintech companies and impact uh, areas. So it's a, it's, a, it's a harder thing to describe now anymore. So you yeah. know, <laughs> the yeah, title is no longer you've simple. You've got a, quite a, a decent and lengthy rap sheet there. Yeah. I, I think my takeaway <laughs> is that Simone is legit. <laughs> I think that's what I'm getting from this. Um, so look, I want to dive into the fintech mentoring stuff because that's, that's a fascinating world, right? You, mm. You're working with usually younger people, I'm guessing, that have got a big idea and are trying to take it out into the world. So, mm. you know, what do you think startup founders need to know when they're setting up a company? I mean, people are hoping to be the next Stripe or the next Coinbase or or whatever, um, but we're still in the startup world. Loads of people fail. Mm-hmm. Loads of even venture capital-backed companies go nowhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what do people need to know before they jump into something like this? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. And I um, I have to say, actually, you're right. Most of the people are kind of younger because you need to be a bit more, like, a bit arrogant. You need to kind of yeah. hear the question. I and stats on this later, Simone. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and um, you need, you need what, what do you mean? What's that? Stats, stats. Oh, I'll jump ahead. I'll yeah. jump ahead. I think the uh, the average age of a unicorn founder is 34. Okay. Whereas the average startup founder in the US is 45. Okay. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's a big, big gap in that. So. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It could be that, you know, these um, younger people can adapt quicker to mm-hmm. the uh, advices that you get from the group of people that's near you or um, kind of can charge ahead uh, without being distracted. Right. So I think those two are kind of the key um, elements I see um, in, in being so, so in a way like headstrong, yeah. you know, so you can have people telling you different things because there will always be an opinion. There will always be naysayers. There will always be people who tell you you're not you're not good enough or you know you, you could be you could do more you could do what whatever um and i think if you just know that like you're on the path and you want to dig that path and kind of filter out all the noise around it that's kind of a really important skill because i think we now live in such a distracted world of you know a, advice coming from all directions and so you know how do you filter and how do you actually pick and choose those that's going to actually you know um shape your opinion and what you do next um, mm-hmm. i think those are really important um, areas. I would also say, I mean, pitfalls. It's it's easy to because you know. I mean, it, it, let's let's be honest. Like, if you're setting up a bank for the first time, and there's like banks that's been around for like hundred years and two hundred years, like you must be, you know, like what what like what is it that yeah. <laughs> makes you think that you're gonna actually do this and do this well, right? So, and I think um, almost like um, not having gone through it or not being part of the industry previously gives you that uh, that that courage. Mm-hmm. to just go and get get it done or get it started right so because then you you're kind of you don't have to worry too much about like what are the risks I mean like for, for someone like me who's been in the industry for 16 17 years like I'm kind of marinated in all the risk and the you know the bad stuff that the the banks and the corporates actually uh do you know so it's really hard for me to be like I'm just gonna go and do this thing because this is gonna like make a big difference because I know there will be walls I know there yeah. will be lots of hurdles right but I think almost like if you come from a tech background and you've had a bad experience with your own bank, it's really easy for you to be like, wait a minute, like the world is changing and the bank's not. Um, And and why is it that we have to accept such bad quality uh, service or the app or the or the technology from 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 banking industry? Um, It shouldn't be the case. Let me just go for it. So, yeah, I was going to say you're talking about younger founders being headstrong. 
And I can imagine the the line between being brave and foolhardy is is quite thin. Yes. Um, so so what misconceptions do you think people have? What do people commonly get wrong? Because I'm guessing there's some real commonality among yeah. the people that do this sort of thing. Yeah. So I think um, the things that people probably get wrong the most are it's actually after after a certain point. It's not about your technical abilities. It's not about how well you can sell. It's actually about how well you can um, manage people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you're younger and you haven't had the experience of managing people uh, that work for you, it's it's really easy to kind of forget that. Like your your job, and, and it's going to be one of the hardest things for you to recruit, which is like the CHRO, so you know the chief uh, HR officer, uh, people officer, whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 hard for a reason. Like you can't pay them enough to deliver uh, deliver good work for you, because um, you know obviously as the corporates get bigger, there will be more and more uh, people coming into your mix. Uh, of course, you try your best to be filtering so that they're good quality people, and and it doesn't matter if they're good quality people. People do make mistakes, and people do things that are you know perhaps not um, not not as easy, uh, as expected. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think if you're a technical founder. It's very hard for you to kind of come out and say, "Okay, I'm gonna like step out of these these roles." Because as a founder, you inevitably have to do things like, "There's a gap in the organization. I have to cover that gap," and yeah. and you have to you have to be able to adapt to different gaps uh, as the as the company grows. So if someone comes in and is, is very technical and can do the engineering, can do the product side of things really well, then you have to kind of let that go and and go. I don't know, yeah, be an office business. manager. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or be a, a, a CFO. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you might have no experience in finance, but investors might want reports or whatever. And, and you know, you don't have anyone to de- delegate it to. So mm-hmm. those things, I think people just need to be really mindful that like, you know, yes, you, you started somewhere, but as the company grows bigger and, and, and you know, gets to be a, a better form, you really just have to uh, be a gap filler. Yeah, and, and speaking of investors, Simone, you are one. You're an, you know an angel investor, which always sounds really glamorous to me. I think it sounds really cool, just looking for these big opportunities and, and getting involved. The question I have for you is: is what kind of companies do you invest in, and and what criteria do you have? Actually, to to de-glamour, de-glamourize oh, the, the angel <laughs> investing. For me. It's actually I, I kind of I, I hear the word angel investing, and I kind of find it funny yeah. actually a friend of mine was like oh yeah we can be the angel investors and like swan around like these companies it's actually it's it's funny because you know you got the wings and you got the you know why are they called angels i think it's because they're kind of not as sophisticated generally so if you're an institutional investor you have a lot of you know tick list and you have due diligence criteria you got to be you know you got to be really clean and good for you to then you know make it to the, the next round and due diligence due diligence and whatever if you're an angel if you're collecting money from the angels generally you're younger Generally, you're looking for people who are like nicer, so mm-hmm. will like spend more time with you, because um, these people are kind of generally, you know, let's say I don't know, retired, cashed out entrepreneurs, or let's say you know people who've been in banking for a long time and have a lot of money, don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Public markets kind of, you know, not doing well. Anything, um, so so then they look into private markets, and this is one of the ways that they can you know diversify in, into the private space. Um, it's 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 risky, um, you know. Uh, you you should do a lot. To, to gain something. Um, you can't just be sitting on like four to five. Um, and I think a lot of the angels actually end up doing having that mistake of like, you know, let's say, you know, do less than 10 companies and kind of sit on them and, you know, not nothing much happens basically. Yeah. Um, 
but of course, if you do, you know, 20 and one of them does really well, that's a great hit rate. Um, uh, personally, I mean, I, I got into it because it, as a way to like start um, getting into this space, um, you know, I wasn't going to go and raise money to like run a VC fund or anything. And yeah. the economics didn't really sound, you know, or, or look good uh, in my eyes. So I thought, you know, OK, as a person, like, what can I do? So, you know, using your personal money, how can you, um, you know, help certain companies? Um, of course, fintech is very natural because I've I come from that world. That's kind of my you know playground. But then uh, all the other areas that I've been wanting to, I've been interested in that yeah. I never had any reason to get involved in. It was a great uh, experience for me. So you know, gaming is is one very good example. My sons are both gamers. One of them is a you know sports person, and the other one's more of a e gamer. So you know, companies that are kind of playing in this kind of gaming space, but also with an angle of like education, those are really interesting. Um, of course, um, companies that are doing um, quite different things in like climate change and in the social justice front, like those are of course really interesting uh, for me. Um, it's it, it's kind of been like a side hustle during mm -hmm. my corporate career anyway. Um, and, and, you know, and a, and a huge number of other things. So, and, and these are generally much younger companies. So they're, uh, I would say, like pre-seed, usually founder or the, just the founding team haven't raised uh, previously. So a lot of them don't know, um, even if you've gone to like an MBA program or have been a you know second time founder, a lot of them don't know how to pitch for their business yet. There's no product yet. Uh, it's a pretty like malleable, fungible space that they're in. So things that I look for um, are, are generally, are the founders, one, are they headstrong and, and you know, can mm -hmm. carry out and execute, um, but also can, can they, are they people that I, I like to work with, right? Yeah. So, so it's really just about the chemistry between um, you as an advisor angel to, uh, to the founder. And I think over the years I've realized actually um, distinguishing between like angel investing and advisory is quite critical. Like, you know, as an angel, you're kind of in there for a long time. You know, you might have written a check, but you might not see them for five to seven years. Um, during that time, you might hear from them every quarter. Um, so, you know, three months type of mm. a, uh, touch points. As an advisor, it's kind of more higher touch points, higher frequency, um, giving them actually tangible advice that they can take away and do things on. So I think the separation is actually quite important. Um, and I think a lot of the angels don't know or don't think about it as they kind of go into this space um, and, and, you know, write their checks um, of, you know, I, I never wanted to be the angel that had like a hundred companies and could not spend yeah. time, time with them. With, yeah. Right. Because it's it, it would like what defeats the purpose. And every time I hear an angel that's got like a hundred or 200 in their portfolio, I'm like, how do you manage that? You know, it's like, how do you know? Like, yeah. do you even know their names? Like, can you can you call out all their hundred names? Uh, just sound, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you remember two hundred people's names. That right. sounds really infeasible. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so you know, I try to manage it under twenty. Yeah. I try to manage it. Um, I haven't yet done any exits. I think my oldest investment's like four years old. Mm -hmm. um, some of them have done really well. Actually, they've gone to like raise really so well. I was going to ask uh, which one are you most excited about. Well, actually, so the, the first ticket that I wrote was on a crowdfunding platform, a Crowdcube yeah. on free trade. Okay. Um, and free trade is a Robin Hood of UK. Uh, they don't do the, the uh, payment for flow uh, that's kind of controversial about Robin Hood. So payment for flow is when, um, you know, this kind of bats is where it started, actually. So if people like Citadel, it, um, they'll actually pay you for um, the, the being a being a uh, passive flow uh generator for their exchanges rather than charging you because usually the exchanges make money for you know taking a cut of all the flow that uh, comes there so robin had the reason why they can make money um even though they don't charge their customers 
for commission is for, for with this dynamic because the uh, free trade people don't believe in that so they don't they don't do that but they do uh, charge their users for monthlies and um, other things for their premium service but also for their sip um, I I love it because I think Hargreaves lands down I mean it's it's the the, the two things so Hargreaves lands down if you were to do a trade there what, no matter what it is whether it's a hundred pounds or hundred thousand pounds it's 13 pounds per you know per, per, per transaction it's it's a massive uh, cost if you were to be a, a frequent trader yeah what and it's both sides whether you're selling or buying it's not just what you know so if you if you think about that against free trade where they actually don't charge you for commission but you know, might take cut on like fx and other areas it's a it's it's true democratization of the things that you know perhaps some some people who've been watching the market who've been thinking okay i can come in and out on a short interval mm-hmm. Um, without taking much, taking much of the view, I I could do you know kind of mid to short term trading a lot more effectively because that cost is gone and and you don't have that barrier anymore. It's it's a it's a game changer and yeah, yeah. it sounds interesting. It sounds really really interesting. And um, to touch upon something else you mentioned because obviously when we think angel investing, we think even like fintech startups. I think the the first thought for lots lots of people is making tons of money. You know, yeah. wild riches creating a unicorn that's worth billions. But you also mentioned ESG and positive impact and, and you know, having a, a good impact. And I know that you're, um, you know, working for Unreasonable Capital. Um, can you tell people a bit more about them? Because I obviously had a glance at the website, read through a bit. That seems like a really fascinating thing to, yeah, thing to be a part of. Yeah. So Unreasonable is a really interesting uh, group. Actually, I have to say, I'm, I'm not involved in any way. I haven't yet you know, uh, done any investing through them or anything. Mm-hmm. They started out as an accelerator group. So kind of very much like a, um, just any, any other normal accelerator. They will uh, have a cohort of companies that they would like to help out. And then they'll have their mentors and you know, peop- uh, the, the people that work in Unreasonable to facilitate um, brain trust sessions. And the brain trust is actually an idea that came out of Google X. So there's a really famous guy. I think he, he might have been an inventor of Google Glasses. Um, you know, the guy the, it used to go, OK, Google. The Google Glasses, yeah. the, the, the same stuff that Facebook and Rayvon are trying to do lately that, you know, yeah. miserably failed. Of course, yeah, you know, it, it, it didn't look good. It, it just didn't look practical. It's, um, yeah. yeah. But um, so he, he, he is called Tom Chi. Uh, and and mm-hmm. he was also a kind of Google entrepreneurship um, pioneer. And and what he did in these brain trust, trust, trust sessions was if someone had a good idea within Google about, you know, new business angle or new business, um, new, you know, verticals or different things, um, they could come and, and pitch to groups of, you know, people who are kind of experts in this area. And then these people will um, ask questions, like you know, super quick questions. And these sessions will be like two hours for one uh, business idea. Um, and it's very well structured. So five minutes of a what, what is the business and a, what, what is your uh, state, statement of problem, problem statement. And then the group of um, mentors or the experts will then fine tune, let's say, three questions each or three or, three or less questions each on, you know, what um, – on that business, on those problem statements, what are the um, what are the questions that you have as a, as as individuals, and then the uh, founders will answer them. So that process usually takes about twenty minutes, and then these uh, groups of experts will then go into their um, kind of breakout rooms or kind of their little groups to come up with uh, solutions to um, to the business. It usually ends with the experts actually committing something, whether it's a um, connection or or time to brainstorm or whatever it is uh, that, mm-hmm. that you think you can give um, 
to to the business. What I like about them is that they don't take applications from startups because it, it kind of you know widens it, but it's also kind of becomes a competitive process. Mm-hmm. They they have a research team in house that does research around the companies, and then they reach out to them, and they they it's get invited yeah. in as fellows to the process. And so, you know, and then what they get is. And, and they have a couple of different uh, uh, themes. Mm-hmm. They have an impact um, space, which is kind of a, a lot of it fintech, but also you know climate-driven companies. So the examples are like um, alternative protein, um, wind turbines, uh, or you know people that uh, make special chemicals that's not as harmful for um, for the environment that goes into then your your skincare products. Um, so some some really creative, but also very impactful and very change driven change change makers um, that that you know kind of make the make the uh, group uh, called Impact. They also have um, education um, driven uh, a theme. So they, that's usually sponsored by the companies like Pearsons or you know it could be kind of education um, related mm-hmm. corporates. Uh, the Impact is I think uh, sponsored by Barclays. And then they also have girl effect, and this is of course female founders and kind of more diverse background um, people uh, making a making a uh, uh, making uh, big splashes in the industry, and um, that's called a girl effect. And it used to be sponsored by Nike. I don't know if it still does, but they have a really impressive roster of corporate sponsors that um, really get involved. And you know, these corporate people, it's their good, it's their great chances to actually see what's out there, and and to um, to help them. Right. So and a lot of these companies aren't super early unproven companies. They're actually a little later stage. So they would have at least done, I don't know, a million pounds worth of turnover. So and, and you know, 50 to 100 people team. So it's proven, uh, proven product to market fit. So there are already existing buyers in the in in the in the industry and in the in the market. So these people aren't, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're like a super early stage companies um, mm-hmm. that come through these, but they're kind of scale up plus so they're yeah kind of, they yeah. must have been notable enough for, to, to have been researched and found out exactly about. So that, that makes exactly. a lot of sense okay um so just a more broad question which is how can fintech make the world a, a better place because there are you know there are companies we've come across like ticker uh, that help people invest in companies having a positive impact mm-hmm. same mm-hmm. goes for uh, climate invest uh, similar remits uh, and ticker claimed recently that 90 percent of its investors are actually completely new to investing which perhaps shows how fintech can enter the space and and help point people in the right direction. So mm-hmm. what else is out there, Simone? And, and what, what can people do in fintech to to drive positive impacts? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this all the time. And I think, you know, I'm, I kind of sit at the intersection of the two, um, which is, you know, which is a really interesting area. I think fintech is an inclusion story. Like it's an empowerment story. It's an inclusion story. It's giving um, people power where they haven't been well served before. Um, so whether it's a challenger bank like Monzo, you know, every time someone takes a bright pink or the orange uh, car that they, they, they have um, from Monzo, it's it's kind of identity. It's a bit of a community. It's also saying no to some of the incumbent banks, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of connects people in, in, in those ways. So in, in many ways, it's impactful because it makes people feel like they're part of something. It, it, it makes people feel um, better about the services that they get, the, the apps they can relate to. It's a lot more. It's like a lot closer to the Snapchats and the Instagrams and the TikTok than the I don't know, just incumbents banking app that you know might not be as as fun to use. Um, so I think the community and the belongings angle is is really interesting. Um, from that perspective, I think the education um, specialists in the finance are 
are, are great. Actually, it's a great idea um, as to the the, the, the pickup and the uh, the adoption. Of course, that's that still remains to be seen. I think it hasn't been as dramatic as people would have liked. I think Robinhood's doing some really good work on that space. So, you know, even things like options or like mm -hmm. derivatives. What does it mean? Like, yeah, trading in and out of a stock, it's it's understandable. But like, what what else what else is out there? What are ETFs and what are you know? You'd be surprised actually. The the ninety percent of the people that uh, are for the first time investors on ticker mm -hmm. will not know these things and you know how do they yeah. research to be able to then do something with them right so it, it's a huge uh learning curve oh definitely and i've seen enough people posting monumental losses yeah. online um it's almost seen as something to brag about in a strange way but mm -hmm. i suppose it's that or cry isn't it or yeah. both perhaps yeah. um no that, that is that is fascinating um and i also want to know you know you're doing work with you know, Cambridge's business school, Oxford's business school. Um, you know, you're working with the brightest minds that couldn't get into Manchester business school, which is <laughs> quite an achievement. So, um, you know, looking at the next generation, Steve Jobs was 21 when he founded Apple, co-founded Apple. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates were 19. Um, I'm sure a few of our listeners will have heard of them. Um, and there are loads of young innovators in this data that I was pointing out early was from earlier was from Ali Tamasev. He's uh, written a book called Super Founders mm. and it shows, you know, typical unicorn founder is 34, typical business startup is a, a 45 year old founder. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a few things really. Firstly, I'm 33. So if any listeners want to throw me some money, hello. <laughs> uh, and secondly, you know, when you're working with young entrepreneurs and people that want to set up, uh, you know, a business, you know, what, what are they thinking? What are these young people thinking? And what insights are you getting into how the next generation might reshape FinTech? Mm. So I think it's it, the generational debate is always very interesting. I'm probably kind of in the older end of like the millennial. So like, you know, um, I don't know how that works anymore, but millennial Gen X, Gen Z yeah. or something. Um, and, and, you know, if you think about like my kids are probably Gen Z, Z and they, uh, they, they, you know, they're into their social justice and the causes and they're into their, I don't know, 30 second clips on TikTok so they never ever, ever <laughs> yeah. listen to the full song they only know the chorus oh, you know it's kind of a it's yeah. very interesting for me because yeah. of course you do a you know 3 minute music video um think that that's short enough it's a, it's a song but actually no they don't even listen to the whole song they that listen to the 30 Simone. seconds yeah <laughs> um and then you know they're into memes and memes is kind of all about the short attention spans and <laughs> and, and things like that so how do you, you know it's attention grabbing economy economy yeah. and you know perhaps social media had something to do with it perhaps you know they, they they contributed some to it for sure um but if i think about in general I, that's kind of the extreme end of the younger generation spectrum i think the younger generation that's coming out uh, of let's say universities or high schools or kind of still in the universities right now it's 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 the world is quite hard to figure out like you know do, should i go work for a big corporate actually maybe not because you know are they doing the right things and are they saying the right things and you know the, the image that you associate yourself with for working for these kind of more established kind of uh, many years old uh, places it's not the same as let's say you know if you went and work for a startup or kind of an up-and-coming um, um, company that you might have never heard of but actually you know they, they, they're doing really well and nobody knows about them but it's kind of world is a bit of a fragmented place I mean I we, even when I was graduating I mean it just going back 20, 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, banking was a very uh, sought after industry. Consulting was a sought after industry. Accounting was sought after industry. If you're an economics major, that's kind of what you did. Or if you were a math major, 
you want to go and work at an actuarial firm or an insurance company or something like that. So it was kind of a, the options are very much there. And, you know, being part of a corporate was kind of considered, you know, safer option, mm-hmm. of course. Um, and if you couldn't, then you might set up a business or something, right? So that that was kind of the path that you were, you know, kind of given as, as part of the, um, and it's it's so different now. Mm-hmm. Right. Like who wants to go on? Uh, and, and, you know, maybe they still do. I don't know. And they but they kind of do it noncommittally. Right. So they they might apply for these things kind of thinking, OK, great. If I get in, like I have another option. But like I'm just going to see what you know, what what I can do uh, here and there. They're much easier to um, be convinced about the, the 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 environmental story, the climate causes and the you know, I think a lot more people are now passionate about those topics and want to go and, and do something there. So if they can do it, and if you know, obviously it depends on their risk appetite too. If they can do it in the context of bigger company, um, great. It kind of gives you a bit of a stability, but also kind of chance for you to do something that you care about. Yeah. Right. And I think, yeah, I think that's a huge generational shift. My experience was similar to yours. Yeah. Um, we had at my university, the big corporates come in and they those schemes seem to be popular, but I, yeah, I can't help but think that younger generations, it doesn't resonate quite so much. Yes, they're safe jobs, but mm-hmm. it, yeah, maybe not what people want to do. But at the same time, you have this great background of having worked with some of the biggest companies. You know, say what you will about it. That's got to be a fantastic grounding in working in finance and being influential and helping people. Uh, you know, at this stage in your career. So, you know, how did that help you when you worked with all these big names that are very familiar with CityWire? Mm-hmm. How does that experience help you when you're working with young, you know, fintech startups? So, um, some of these companies want to have them as their client roster. Right, so some of them, some of them want, would love to have I don't know Goldman Sachs as their client logo at the bottom of their web page, where they kind of showcase their testimonials and and you know who we work with and, and those yeah. sections, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, I would think that if you're a founder of, of that uh, that area, then you probably want to put you know I don't know Starlings and Monzo's and Revolut's yeah. rather than um, Goldman's, but of course you know they it, it'll be it'll be easier. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it'd be easier to have those people on, but they would also be fickle. Like the, you know, the fintech mm-hmm. fintechs as the uh, as as your customer base for a lot of these companies. I mean, they will negotiate hard. They won't be as um, lucrative as in you know, it's it won't be like multi years. It won't be you know what have you. Um, these companies are are older. They're you know more established. I mean, in many ways, they're they're risk averse like nothing else, right? So. In the areas that take they take risk, it's it's great if they can can still do it. But actually, they've been regulated to a degree. They you know they're kind of like almost a, a, just a middleman now. Like they were always a middleman, but like middleman squeezed to mm-hmm. a very small space in terms of the margin, right? So you you have to put up a red capital regulatory regulatory capital for you to operate in the ways that you you were doing it. Like post 08, a lot of these banks have been hit with just margin squeeze like nothing else, mm-hmm. right? So um, I, I think these are like the corporate, per, you know, people and people within it are like super, um, uh, super methodical about like being, being kind of, um, you know, saying no to risk, uh, but also they're like, you know, they need perfect solution. They can't have someone who come and pitch you about like, we can do this, we can do that. Oh, mm-hmm. by the way, we, this is kind of what we're doing now, but we have abilities to do all these kind of, you know, wraparound stuff. If they start hearing that, it's like, what, like, what are you doing? And and you know, I mean, it's a lack of focus that kind of frustrate them, but also, you know, that that's why it's actually hard for them to get their arms around like working with them as a customer. Yeah, um, it's much easier for them to work with them as an investor, 
because and if you're an investor, you can guide them. You can tell them, hey, these might be the products that we, you know, our, our companies might need. And actually, you see that happening at Goldman Sachs like all the time. They're you know, going through. They have a huge number of startups that they invest in, a huge number of failures that, that they've invested in that didn't work out. Um, those that actually do really well, they you know, might, I don't know, uh, buy it out as, as part of the corporate purchase or um, you know, parcel it to some of the other organizations that yeah. they work with. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I think my experience in those places it probably is the most relevant. Like, if I've been a, a buyer in in that situation, like you know what, so you know what kind of process goes into saying yes or no to certain vendors, and you know how do we um, navigate the the whole process of it's it, let's face it, it's a dull, super long, takes forever process. But at the end, if you get there, it's like a lottery. You you win a huge contract with a huge bank. And they probably, you know, they, they probably auto auto renew. And you're kind of on this really comfy, um, I mean, the stuff that I signed at Morgan Stanley back in 2007, there are companies that are still on on that contract, I mean, multiples mm -hmm. of it now. Yeah. So it, it's a, and then you start getting into the, ins, you know, you start working with the company to then build better solutions, help them solve their little problems here and there. And then you're, you get very integrated. So it's really hard for you to then divorce um, between the two. So. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Um, it's, should it be your sole focus? No, because um, in the initial days, you should be focusing on the areas where you know that the the problems that they have is is so large. This is why you should never ignore the inbounds. If someone comes to you and says, um, "We read on your website that this is a product you have. We're looking for just this. Can we work with you?" Their second tier, third tier, fourth tier tier bank. Don't ignore them. Actually, mm -hmm. go work with them first, right? Because yeah. you should be baking this, but maybe spend five to ten percent of your time. Uh, in the hopes that one day it might come out. Companies like Goldman's and Morgan Stanley, they're, they're slightly different to the likes of, let's say, J.P. Morgan, because J.P. Morgan's mammoth and it's got a huge number of people. Um, they're really hard to navigate. So, you know, it mm. will be a multi-year project for you. Um, yeah. But, you know, you should know, <clears throat> you should know what, what happens in those places. And I think that's yeah. that's what I bring as a value to this. Some of the it's so interesting you say that because I was a... Uh, a fintech event a couple of years back, Fintech Connect, uh, you know, in London, and most of the founders that I spoke to were saying, we want to work with the banks. Everything, you know, because I, I was coming at this from the perspective of the wealth and advice market. Yes. You know, I was saying, oh, do you work with wealth managers? Do you work with financial advisors? Do yes. You work? Everyone, same thing. Everyone we want to, to work with the banks. Yeah. And I think for a lot, lots of people, they've not realized, as, as you kind of explained, that is easier said than done. Yes. And a multi-year, huge resource. It's a it's kind a of. Thing. Commitment. Yeah. Yes, commitment would be a better word than thing. Aww. Yes. Um, so, Simone, um, last question I've got for you is: um, obviously, this is the Wealth Tech Show. We're talking about what wealth managers and financial advisors mm -hmm. can do to get in on fintech uh, or get on wealth tech and make the best use of it, and make you know, in, be that as an investor or as a user of it. Um, where do you see the opportunities? What do you think the next big thing is? Yeah. So. This is a really good question. I mean, I've obviously uh, been involved in wealth tech space for a while. Um, I think it's very crowded. There's a lot of solutions around, like let's say, cash flows and just advisory spaces. It's there's lots and lots of different solutions that you could you could explore. Um, I think what will be really key is those open banking providers, um, the people who open you know they give you the APIs for the uh, data into the personal banking um, space. That needs to actually extend into the uh, the finance and the wealth management space. So, open investments or open finance. I know there's some countries that's kind of looking into this initiative as a 
as, as kind of the next focal area. Um, it's going to be pretty key. I know this is kind of a particularly difficult area because, you know, if someone owns something in their portfolio, uh, why should it be transparent? Why should people talk about it? Or why should someone have access to it so that they can better serve me? But people used to say that about their bank accounts and the activities there. Um, I mean, the comparison in terms of the market size, it's probably, uh, I mean, you, you could say that it's probably bigger, but on the personal, like if it's non-institutional personal portfolios, and I know, you know, there's family offices with their bigger sizes and what have you, um, it's probably comparable. Like, you know, personal banking, tons of people, tons of volume, um, uh, the data there uh, that is, is driven by the open banking initiatives is probably not too different from um, the open investments or the open finance um, area. I think that really drives the um, the access to a lot of the fintechs that's been doing a lot of things in this space. Um, so doing that will enable a lot of the people that couldn't shine previously. This is like let's face it, there's a lot of good tech out there. So it's not a shortage of good tech. That's not that's you know um, not driving. Uh, adoption. It's the it's the lack of access to the data or what people can do um, uh, with the good tech that they already have. Mm -hmm. So I think the open banking kind of extending into the wealth space is quite important. Um, I love, of course, the sustainability story. Um, I think again, that's a bit overdone. There's a lot of greenwashing and pinkwashing, yeah, sure. and you know. Uh, so how like I still don't know who the right players are for data. So let's say, I mean, public market is really hard to hard to do that on. But let's say if you're Google, and you know, when you were younger, you did everything. Your your motto was, let everyone let's let's help everyone search for things that they want to that they want to look up. Um, but as they got bigger, they started putting ads on, and they started not filtering certain things, and they, you know, there, there's a lot of gray areas where they get involved in it. It's ethical considerations that they need to, and and you know, I don't think that. Not so much Google, but you know, Facebooks and others. I don't think that the uh, avoiding the question around like, no, we're not a, you know, we're not going to filter this because you know we, we want to give access. Like that's not an answer. Like when you're that size, of course you yeah. have responsibilities, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how are you going to rate these, right, on the ESG spectrum, right? So it's a hard job, and so it's almost uh, it's it's very hard actually. In fact, and even if you want to do it on like a zero to hundred scale, it's very hard. Um, then to construct a portfolio on the back of it, it's even harder because of the correlation and other kind of you know, things that's going to that's gonna happen between the two, two or three positions. So I, I still don't know. A lot of the good um, data players in the ESG space have been bought by incumbents. And let's be honest, like they've kind of then disappeared into the ether and nobody hears about them. Like in the beginning, there were these, you know, like True Value Labs is one thing that S&P recently bought. And, you know, in the beginning, they were, really promising actually uh, yeah, yeah I, I make sense out of what you're doing there and you know 18,000 stocks and across these mm -hmm. these different met metrics but it just becomes too complicated and they can't get a grasp of like there's no um, leader in the space of like ESG quantification or you know um, making making sense out of the ESG data um, I think that's one area that's kind of been over overplayed like you know yeah. sustainalytics got bought up by Morningstar absolutely we uh, had a previous episode about that actually with Gavin Francis from Worthstone and mm. his uh, positive impact portal which which basically attempts to help you build a, 
a portfolio that is meeting ESG and sustainability criteria. Mm -hmm. It looks at the whole range of UK funds. I believe there's 50,000 plus that people can invest in. And Gavin and his team have narrowed it down to just over 300 mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. meet the criteria. And, and that's really interesting when you look at there's you know, greenwashing, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and ESG funds, including things like uh, oil and gas, yeah. even, or yeah. including the FANG stocks. And as you say, there is so much going on yeah. around those, which yeah. it, it's it's hard. It's, it's a real challenge. Yeah. And, uh, but as you say, there are developments yeah. that seem to be making it yeah. a I, bit I more think, accessible. I think a lot of people are kind of stuck in the zone of like, it can't be just good and bad. It's kind of some, you know, some mm -hmm. kind of you know, shades of gray, that kind of uh, stuff. But like, what is the tangible, like what is, what is actually quantifiable? What is actually really tangible? And I think those things should be just kind of done. And, and you know, kind of in, 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 in a lot of people will say that there's been many attempts to get them done. Um, but there's no like one standard uh, way to do it, and with, when there is no standard way to do it, then it just becomes uh, as as good as nothing. So like you know, I think mm -hmm. governments have a bit of a responsibility there. Like I think they should be enforcing standards rather than you know corporates kind of picking whatever comes their way because um, that's mm -hmm. kind of what I see all the time. Um, and and likewise with the asset management industry, I think financial services have a huge responsibility to enforce this for for the corporates because they hold their they're, they're usually the uh, shareholders in these companies so how can they enforce good behavior not just profit yeah right. and that is a great point to finish on simone thank you uh, so much for joining us um i think we're all more informed on on startups angel investing uh, making the world a better place through that as well um and i think that would have been really worthwhile for anyone in the startup space um, you know, who, who's looking to get involved to just hear hear your knowledge and your experience of, of doing all of this. And thanks, as always, to our CityWire listeners. This has been the Wealth Tech Show. I've been Ian Horn, uh, at least I think I have. And for anyone who wants to get in touch about this episode or the podcast in general, send me a note at ihorn, which is just my name, basically, at citywire.co.uk. Mm -hmm.